There were ways of thinking and talking about each other that were completely off the table, I would say, in 2014 that now feel more mainstream. Those who track online hate speech, whether it's anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, Islamophobia, all of the signs point to just an unleashing of, you know, a discourse that seemed marginal. Welcome to the United Nations Uniting Against Hate podcast, where we share the stories of those who've encountered hate speech and talk to the activists and experts about how they're working to counter it. First, we'll be hearing from Tendaichi Achumi, a law professor at the University of California, who for the last five years has been monitoring racism and related intolerance as a UN special rapporteur. That means she's an independent human rights expert appointed by the UN Human Rights Council. Media technology transforms and it unleashes things that haven't been seen before. We are approaching the kinds of divisions and problems at a global and planetary level that put us on a timeline that mean that we may not have the kind of time that previous generations had to work these things out before our systems actually drown us. Then I'll be speaking to Yaroslav Veluk from Prague-based organization Transitions. Yaroslav's been working with other people in the country to help counter hate speech. He also points out that in the mid-2010s, he noticed a big escalation in hate speech and hate-motivated violence. 2015 was specific because suddenly we've seen like this mixture of this traditional right-wing extremist fueling hatred, then the algorithms enabling it, then some state-sponsored efforts to really put more gas into that fire that was already burning. But first, Connor Lennon spoke to Tendai about her latest and last thematic report and how, during the period of her mandate, she's seen a consolidation of offensive and extreme viewpoints. Another reason for you being here, you, you delivered a, a thematic report. It's also your last report as a special rapporteur. Uh, would you be sorry to leave or are you glad it's over? It's both. I'm sorry to leave because the problems are nowhere close to being solved. And if I think about the state of the world in relation to racism, xenophobia and related intolerance in 2022 versus when I took on the mandate in 2017, there are ways in which the problems feel even more extreme. Um, but I'm relieved because no one person should be any one role too long and so I'm excited to see what my uh, successor will do in the role as well. So you think the landscape is very different when it comes to racism and intolerance than when you took over? Absolutely. In what ways? So it's different in ways that are terrifying and it's different in ways actually that are I think a source of hope. The sense in which it's terrifying is that when I took on my mandate I think we were just beginning to see the rise of extreme right wing kind of populism taking hold in different governments across the world and just a changing landscape that I think has finally been consolidated. There were ways of thinking and talking about each other that were completely off the table, I would say, in say 2000 and maybe 2017 is too late, but let's say 2014 that now feel more mainstream. And you can see this just in tracking of you were talking about online hate speech, you know, those who track online hate speech, whether it's anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, Islamophobia, all of the signs point to just an unleashing of, you know, a discourse course that seemed marginal, as you were saying. So that's, I, I would say, the dark side. And you can think about that alongside 
structural forms of discrimination and exclusion that also seem heightened. The, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that nationally and also across borders, those who were most affected were racially and ethnically marginalized groups in ways that were very profound. So I want to link both kind of explicit forms of intolerance to more structural forms of exclusion, which I think is important. So that's that's the darker side. But I would say that we've also seen profound positive mobilizations. And I, I point now to 2020 when following the murder of George Floyd, there was just triggered in the US and then across the world, I would say, a very powerful popular mobilization in support of racial justice, which I think was the first time we've seen that in the world. Even when we think about anti-apartheid demonstrations, they were never quite as big and as transformative as they are. So, so that to me is hopeful. I think we're seeing mobilizations for equality and justice that weren't on the table before. Right. And the optimists would say that the, the worrying signs you're talking about, for example, uh, people openly talking about being, being Nazis or openly mm-hmm. talking about it being extreme right wing, that these are just the last vestiges of uh, a reaction to mm-hmm. a world that is actually moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That's what the optimists would say. Do you think that's correct? I think that they're onto something, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. And I think this is what's both terrifying and exciting. I think that history definitely shapes where we're going, but it doesn't determine it. And I, and I think what we're seeing is a backlash against very serious progress. And, and so the, the, this kind of resurgence, I think, is responding to positive um, shifts. But whether it's actually the last vestiges, I think, depends on what people and what governments do in response, right? So uh, the extreme shift to the right, is that going to dictate what liberal democracy looks like across the board? Or will there be a concerted rejection that says this has to be the last vestiges? I don't think it's a given that it will just die out for natural reasons. And I think looking at the social media context is a really good lens um, for this. And so when we think about the rise of online hate speech and we think about conversations there, in my role as special rapporteur, a lot of the times people want to talk about content moderation. So what should be allowed on these platforms without paying close attention to the political economy of these social media platforms? Like what's profitable? And it turns out hate speech is profitable. And I've written a report on this, a number of reports actually on, on kind of these social media platforms and how... The division drives clicks. Absolutely. And so if what we're interested in is a different approach, we have to rethink the political economy and the business models. But very often those aren't considered kind of anti-racism conversations. We get stuck on how are we going to moderate content rather than thinking about who and how ownership of of these spaces is maintained and who kind of benefits and who loses from the dynamics. Because in a way, this isn't new, is it? I mean, we've had hate speech for many years, many decades. Radio used to be the big disseminator of hate speech that drove the drove genocide as we know mm-hmm. and then there was a reaction to that Are we, do you think we're just in an early stage of learning how to to navigate this this mm-hmm. still fairly new medium, social media. Yes. So we are in an early stage and you're right to say that tech, media technology transforms and it unleashes things that haven't seen, haven't been seen before, right? If you think about Benedict Anderson's book, Imagine Communities, where he talks about the role of just newspapers and what the advent of newspapers did for the meaning of the nation state. You had mentioned radios, now we're looking at tech. So for sure, this is a new technology, we don't know where it's going to go. But I think it's happening at a time where our ability to keep up with and track the different forces that are unleashed, again, can't be taken for granted. And to my 
mind, one of the things that makes this urgent is the climate um, crisis, right? So my report to the General Assembly was actually on racial justice and climate justice. But we are approaching the kinds of divisions and problems at a global and planetary level that are all interconnected, I can say more about this, that put us on a timeline that mean that we may not have the kind of time that previous generations had to work these things out before our systems actually drown us, quite literally. We have also had discussions here, um, my colleagues and I, with people who've been really promoting the idea of intercultural dialogue. Mm. Basically, it's talking. So Mm. a lot of information is coming out, not a lot of exchanges go on. Mm. And an attempt to create an exchange where you can actually learn to understand people who are different from you. Mm. Uh, Is this something that that you think can really make a difference, given that the scale of the problem seems to be so huge? It's definitely a site that we can't just kind of take our hands off of, right? And this is oftentimes a way that I look at it. There are things we cannot afford to abandon because we don't have the luxury of doing so. So I think the kind of dialogue that you're describing isn't going to solve the problem, but without it, the problem will be worse. So it's absolutely urgent that we continue to think about creating spaces for people who have different opinions to connect. But if you think about what actually shapes the way we view each other, it's not just those dialogues. It's what we see on TV. It's what we're listening to on, in, in, in music. It's what we're seeing on social media. It's like the the ways in which our worlds are formed are really complex. And I think the, inter, the, the dialogues that you're describing have to be, be positioned side by side with all of the other ways our worlds and our relationships are sort of constructed. It has to be multifaceted, multi-layered, and that can't be the only site of intervention. Well, I hope you'll come back and tell us about it as well. Tendaya Chumi, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. This is the United Nations Uniting Against Hate podcast, and that was Connor Lennon talking to UN Special Rapporteur Tendai Achumi, a law professor at the University of California who's been monitoring racism and related intolerance. My next guest works in the Czech Republic on just this kind of multifaceted, multi-layered intervention to counter hate speech. Hi, my name is Jaroslav Valuch. I'm working with uh, Transitions, which is a Prague-based media development organization. We do a lot of work in supporting good quality journalism, but also working with some uh, neglected groups uh, in the fields of news and media literacy to prevent hatred and violent conflict. I started working in this field of preventing hate speech, hate violence, hate crimes in 2000, basically, as an as an activist, and uh, I've been working on some projects that were monitoring at that time extreme extreme right wing groups who were committing violent crimes and hate crimes and murders. And the number one victim for many years in the Czech Republic was traditionally the Roma community since since the 90s, basically since the revolution in 1989. Obviously, there were also other targets. For example, Czech Republic has a very strong Vietnamese community. Vietnamese migrants came in the 80s to work in the Czech Republic and they stayed and they started families. So that was another big target for racially motivated violence. And other minorities as well. For example, the Ukrainian minority has been here also for many, many years. So that's where we started. And I think like systematically, I started working in this in this area in 2009, 10, 11, when I joined the governmental team that was starting kind of communication interventions to counter hate-motivated violence because we've seen a big escalation in the on the regional level where there were many demonstrations, protests against the Roma minority. 
So 2010, that was when we got scared of, of the sentiments and uh, attempts of violent attacks on the, on the Roma communities. And we were trying to identify ways how to counter that and how to counter hate speech. Obviously, that, that is the time when Facebook got extreme popularity in the Czech Republic as well. So again, for the traditional authorities, this was kind of a new field, right? Like, how do we respond to incitement to violence on these new things such as social networks? So it was it was really kind of interesting and challenging moment how to address it. So we tried in many different ways. But then 2015 came with this big so-called refugee crisis when hundreds of thousands of refugees, mostly from Syria, started entering Europe, entering partially Czech Republic. And that's another moment where we, when we have seen like a really major escalation of of hate speech towards the Muslims and towards the refugees. By that time, we were, I think, smarter a little bit more because we already did have some understanding of how, for example, Facebook algorithms are accelerating this, this hate speech and hate violence. So we were trying to address it. 2015 was already specific because some other new phenomena stepped in, which is uh, Russian-sponsored disinformation and the so-called fake news phenomena. So suddenly, you know, we've seen like this mixture of this traditional right-wing extremist fueling hatred, then the algorithms enabling it, and then some state-sponsored efforts to really put more gas into that fire that was already burning, but just like really trying to fan it into much bigger proportions. So 2015 was important milestone. Once the so-called refugee crisis was over, the hatred shifted back towards the Roma. And obviously, to these days, with the Russian aggression in Ukraine, we are facing additional new challenges. So where have these hateful discourses been coming from? It was always a mixture of the populist parties and populist politicians riding the wave of discontent of the ordinary people, right? So one wouldn't work without the other. I mean, it's unquestionable that there were some serious disconcern, discontent with the public policy in specific areas, right? And this frustration often turns into hate violence and hate speech, right? So people might not necessarily be motivated by the fact that they want to commit violence, but the frustration, especially on the social field and the frustration with the general politics and discontent with the politics, discontent with the development since 1989, disappointment with the democratic system often has these kind of outbursts. And one of them is just hatred towards the other groups. And this is so easy to kind of monetize for political populist business or for business in general, right? Like generating disinformation websites, spreading hatred, clickbaiting, rage-baiting the hatred, then monetizing it into, into a political or financial income. So it's, it's both ways, but obviously these sentiments in the society are very exploitable and there are many skillful actors who know how to do that. I see. Okay. So can you tell me a bit more about how your organization's trying to counter this? Right. So when I mentioned 2015, I mean, it was really kind of a major shock for, for many actors when people were thinking about like, how, what do we do with this huge polarization and violent radicalization in our communities and in our society? And there was an interesting moment then. Yes, there were hundreds of thousands of refugees coming into Europe, but not necessarily into the Czech Republic. So there was not really a direct personal experience that the Czech population would have with Muslims or with the refugees from the Middle East. But still, the level of negative sentiments towards them was one of the highest in Europe. 
right? So this was like kind of interesting moment. And we were really lucky to get in touch uh, at that time with the organization called Over Zero, who really helped us to facilitate the process of building some kind of communication strategies to counter that hatred. And it really started with bringing all important actors together from the government, the communicators, experts in the fields of sociology, political science, psychology, you name it, right? Uh, people from nonprofit sector, activists, community leaders. And starting it as a collaborative process where we started really detailed kind of disassembling this topic into little pieces of understanding why there is a frustration, which groups of segments of society are, you know, engaged, uh, who is most frustrated, and then step-by-step step building the strategy on how could we address not just the problem itself, the hate speech, but also the underlying issues that lead people to commit hate speech or incite the violence. So it was a process that took over over a year, but it was a major improvement because suddenly we were not just doing, you know, campaign against hatred, campaign against racism, but really was kind of a multi-actor, multidisciplinary approach. And one of the outcomes was the understanding that people don't have the direct negative experience with refugees, let's say, or with migrants, right? So apparently the hatred is kind of mediated, right? It, it happens that people get radicalized through other means because they lack the personal experience. And so obviously we've seen that there are very strong disinformation campaigns trying to paint the refugees as, you know, a major threat, really using hoaxes and disinformation and propaganda to turn people against this group. So we were thinking, right, like, how do we address this problem? And obviously, media literacy or media education came on, on our mind. Well, maybe if we make people more resilient to this type of disinformation, as a consequence, we might be able to counter or prevent this violent radicalization. So we're trying to identify, like, who are the actors who could help us in this field? So obviously, it's schools, it's the educational system, but it takes ages, right? It, to change the curricula, to change the system, it's a, it's a long process. And we needed some interventions that could be implemented immediately. And in the Czech Republic, we are blessed enough that we have the most dense network of public libraries, right? So there is a public library in almost every single village, right? It's a, it's a great thing. And the librarians are a very active network who are trying to identify their role, not just as the bookkeepers, basically, but also as kind of ecosystem guides for the local communities. So this was really a good match that, that we felt like, okay, maybe we can, we, we need to go to the very local level and we should be addressing also groups that we normally don't address groups that are underserved by these uh, fact-checking initiatives or debunking initiatives, right? And we identified that one of the groups certainly might be the elderly citizens and the seniors because we've seen a huge rise in the phenomena of called uh, chain emails. So the senior population is not necessarily using Facebook because they haven't discovered the beauty of it yet, but they use email or later they use messenger, private messages as kind of a social network, right? So again, this was like really untapped social communication channel. So that this is, this is the niche thing that we identified that nobody is really providing media educational services to elderly citizens. So we started experimenting with it. And 
I would say we're successful because now we have a full program that is really working all over the Czech Republic and the neighboring countries, the Poland, Slovakia and Hungary, and really using media education practices to improve people's resilience to disinformation, hoaxes and hate speech. Wow, that's really interesting. As when I think about the subject and online hate speech, I usually think about young people. So how do you see the project developing? So we started as an initiative that was fighting disinformation. And over the years, I think, and thanks to the seniors themselves, we really shaped the goal uh, a little bit. And I think we no longer primarily fight hate speech and disinformation, but we use it as an opportunity to create opportunities for social gatherings on the local level, right? So if you think about the senior citizens, I mean, one of the leading problems why they spread this type of information is because they feel uh, excluded from the society, they feel uh, underserved, uh, they feel that they, the topics that are important to them are not covered in the mainstream media. And all of these are very valid and relevant concerns, right? And this frustration often ventilates into like really using chain emails to be in touch, to, to remain in social contact with other people. And they use disinformation and hatred also as a, a kind of stick that they can beat the, the system or the government, you know, like listen to us. So there are all these underlying psychological, sociological grievances so that's why what we're trying to do at this moment with our program is we say like, look, I mean, we're not going to lecture you about, you know, how it is bad to share fake news over chain email. I mean, it's your right to use whatever channel you want to remain in touch with people. But this is a very interesting topic. You hear about it in the media. You probably don't know what's the whole fuzz about. So let's meet and we can talk, right? We'll bring some people with us. We'll bring some journalists and we create the new opportunities to meet. So, so we try to visit these communities multiple times so that we establish more connections and so that we establish the trust among ourselves, the journalists and the local communities. And again, we use fake news as an, as an exciting topic because it, there's a lot of investigation involved. You know, it's like this being this digital Sherlock, right? Like you're investigating who's the source of the message. We have workshops where they learn these basic investigation method, methods. And the ultimate goal is not necessarily to tell them like, hey, don't spread the fake news or don't trust these sources. But it's rather like, hey, let's enjoy some time together and as a byproduct, we make them more resilient towards disinformation and propaganda. That was Yaroslav Veluk from Prague-based organization Transitions. Earlier, we heard from UN Special Rapporteur Tendai Achumi, who for the last five years has been monitoring racism and related intolerance. If you want to find out more about their work or about this subject more generally, you can find links on the webpage of this podcast. So for now, goodbye, and I hope you'll join us again soon for another edition of the Uniting Against Hate podcast from the United Nations.